Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Everyone here in the audience knows Dana Joya, uh, who is um, often in the pages of First Things, and uh, one of our supreme poets and essayists, and so I hear a literature teacher. Dana, Dana, I actually have to ask you, uh, you, you were at USC for several years until you retired last year. Uh, you told me once that you get 200 students in your poetry classes. Now, how does that happen when English enrollments have been dropping so fast? I'm, I'm asking you that before we get to the, the book that we're going to talk about, but I had to ask you, how do you get 200 students to take a poetry class? Well, you know, actually, I have more than that uh, many students who tried to sign up. But, you know, we had to top it off at, I think, about 207 or 208 people, which was what the fire marshal put as the max. You know, I think students want to study literature. They want to study history. They want to study the humanities. But their experience is that those subjects are taught really very tediously, very uh, self-consciously, and fashionably postmodern uh, in most universities. So they go to them and they find themselves bored. Uh, my class, I, I directed it very much towards trying to make poetry connect to the students' lives. Now, that sounds like I'm Mr. Let's Be Relevant. My class was extraordinarily demanding. They had to do uh, three papers. They had a, an objective midterm, an objective final. They had to memorize poems. They had to attend extracurricular literary events. Uh, and they were responsible for knowing the meaning of every word in every poem we assigned. And, and they were tested on that. Uh, and so it was an extremely hard class. I dare to say it was probably the most demanding class in the humanities at USC. But you know, what I designed the class to do was to give them the experience of poetry and to feel the excitement that coming into a great contact, uh, you know, with, with literary masterpieces actually means to your psyche, your imagination, your mind, and how that encounter, how the study of language would help them in the rest of their lives. And they understood it. And, you know, so I think, it, I think it's, you, you know, you really have to, uh, I mean, it, it sounds terribly, uh, you know, you know, dull to say this. You have to sort of to touch back into some of the traditional virtues of poetry, as great language, uh, as memorable language, and as a vehicle for wisdom. 
Well, I, I, I can just, I mean, you had the memorized poems. I think, I think that was cruel. But, but we'll, 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 we'll get to, uh, <laughs> actually, we'll get to memorization when we talk about Elizabeth Bishop, uh, which gets, gets us to our topic today. There's a new book out entitled Studying with Miss Bishop, Memoirs of a Young Writer's Life, just out from Tall Dry Books uh, by Dana. It is a memoir of your encounter with a few major writers at a formative time uh, in your life. But one thing I noted was it doesn't begin with renowned Elizabeth Bishop or any other writer. We have someone else, a dead uncle. Who was he and what did he mean to you? I'm a working class kid from Los Angeles. I was raised in a stucco apartment in a neighborhood of stucco apartments. And most of the people in my neighborhood, I don't think they read at all. But our house was full of very intellectual books. They didn't belong to my parents. They belonged to my uncle, Ted Ortiz, my Mexican uncle, Ted Ortiz, who was a merchant marine, but was also a kind of working class intellectual, the the old-fashioned proletariat intellectual. In fact, he was for some years a communist, but then in his uh, mid-20s, he uh, came into the Catholic Church. And so, you know, it was a, you know, a life full of intellectual journey. Anyway, he died uh, in a plane crash. And he had lived with my parents when he wasn't at sea. So he would show up for a month or two every year. And they kept all of his books. I think my mother kept them out of affection for him, although they were not the kind of books that they were likely to read, the novels of Thomas Mann, the, the plays and music reviews of George Bernard Shaw, the complete works of Bach in large folio editions in you know, German. So I grew up, in a sense, in this enchanted <laughs> library that was stuffed into a kind of you know, rather dismal apartment. And it changed me. It changed my brother Ted, too. It gave us a sense that uh, even though we were in a place where there was not a lot of intellectuality, that anything was possible for us if we tried. Hmm. And you weren't you weren't pushed into reading those books that were on the walls. Where do you think your reading bug? I mean, you, you became a fanatical reader. You say in this. Well, I still, I still am. I'm, a, I'm a, an obsessive reader. But where did this come from when you when you were six years old? I mean, was it the sort of the memory of of this somewhat romantic figure who who was out there on the ocean? He was a communist for a time. He 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 then came into the church. He he goes down in in an airplane crash. Was it was it that 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 memory that that the books some somehow that drew you that drew you in to the books because you say it wasn't your parents who pushed you in this way. If it was the memory that drew, his memory, which is was very vague in my in my mind, I didn't. I was really quite young when I I used to share a room with him because you know he was when he came home, you know, it was another bed, uh, you know, my room that he you know, he would sleep in. But it was you know very vague memory. I think it was, or it might have been the books that drew me to him. I think it, I think I was a dreamy kid, and I liked nothing more than reading books. I liked, you know, both kind of escapist books. I mean, I read Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, and Ray Bradbury, but I also liked history. I liked art. And, and I think what it, in retrospect is that 
I am a person who enjoys living in his imagination. I guess that doomed me to be an artist. Uh, but I think what the books did in a funny way was to say, it's okay to live in your imagination because I have to say, otherwise living in a, a you know, Sicilian Mexican neighborhood, you did not get a lot of encouragement <laughs> to live in your imagination. You know, you're like, my uncle, you know, Jack, my uncle Giacomo would, you know, hit me on, you know, you know, you know, on the buttons and get to work, you know, this, that, and the other. So it was a very practical culture that I was raised in because these were very poor people who were just making do. Um, I do think that my uncle's life, which was, he, you know, graduated, you know, they kept pushing him ahead early on grades. So he graduated from high school at the age of 15. He lied about his age and joined the Merchant Marine. Hmm. And he, you know, would send us postcards from China, from Korea, from Japan. And so there was the sense of you could go anywhere in the world if you worked your way. And so uh, and he taught himself five languages. And so I think it was just a, a case of he told me, even though he was dead, his ghost, his books told me that I could dream. I could think big in terms of my life. And I think that's been, uh, people always ask me, well, how did you get to do, you know, do this, that, and the other? I said, I don't know. I just did it. And I think it's helpful for kids and for adolescents to have examples. And I was raised Catholic. And to this day, I believe in the power of patron saints, Um, you know, to have those people who give you models of heroic virtue, of extraordinary lives. Versus the ordinary lives that are around you. I love little neighborhood public libraries. What did the public library in Hawthorne at that time mean to you when you were a kid? It was inexhaustible. Now, I want to say a few words in praise of political corruption. (laughs) Hawthorne, the town I was in, was corrupt, remains corrupt. You know, it's a working class town. You, you, you said, I, I think you said that they're, they're, the, the population was mostly Mexican and Italian, Sicilian, and then there was a small group of Irish who, who ran everything. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's, you know, that's typical of working class towns too. But one of the forms that Hawthorne corruption took was to get a county branch of the library and just and to have constant number of books come in there. I'm sure somebody was skimming something off the budget, but it was an inexhaustible collection. It was a huge library, which I could simply walk into and, and get anything that I wanted. And I think that the librarians were just astonished when this little kid would come and would you know check out books on Venetian Renaissance painting or Caesar's Gallic Wars. But they did. They never. They never stopped me from from checking out any book I wanted, and uh, and so it was good. It was allowed me to educate myself, since you know the education I was getting locally was was rather spotty. So well, you 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 learn enough, you read enough, you do well enough in school. You go to Harvard. You actually go to Stanford. Then you go to Harvard for graduate school. You went into comp lit because you you thought I I didn't want to just go in one language. And this is where you end up in a class with Miss Bishop. Uh, why was, why was, I mean, there were only four or five people in this class. Why, why, why weren't there 200 people clamoring to get into the famous 
canonical Elizabeth Bishop's classrooms? Because she wasn't canonical then. Harvard is a school where your number one study is what is fashionable. And, uh, you know, Harvard students, you know, are always, you know, chasing after the person they perceive as the most famous person. Bishop was not well known then. She was a poet's poet. Poets knew her, but other people didn't. I had happened to discover Bishop's work in high school because she had been, I wanted to be a composer at that point. And Bishop had been set to music uh, by Ned Roram, whose songs I liked. And so I, I liked the songs. I got a book of hers out of the library. I read it. I liked it. And uh, in college, she was one of the few contemporary poets that I read. And, and I was led to these, compo- these poets, not through my English professors, but through composers. And I think actually composers are very good judges of poetry. My friend Morton Lauridson, the great choral composer, I think many people in First Things know his music from both the concert hall and from churches. Morton Lauridson used to begin every class at USC in musical composition by reading a poem. So anyway, I thought she was great, but she was just not fashionable. And so you know, I took this class, and in retrospect, it was, you know, something that is of enormous interest to people because that, not that many people were chronicling what Bishop did. She was at the very end of her life when she became famous. And so there's very few accounts of, of her early and middle years. Anyway, but it was a, it was a, a, she was a terrible teacher, as she herself <laughs> admitted. But the form her terrible teaching took was to create absolutely the perfect way of reading poems. You know, the, the book that we're taught, studying with Miss Bishop is a weird book, um, in that, especially nowadays, in that it's a book that's full of love and gratitude. Um, I'm talking about how I became a writer. And the way I became a writer was very much through friendship, uh, through you know, finding teachers who I, in some sense, loved and letting my spirit, my imagination, be led by affection and respect. And so I think so many literary books, especially memoirs, are backbiting. You know, people are trying to get payback, settle score. Mine is, is, a, is, I think, a pretty much a thank you letter. And, you know, and I think people sense that. I think people find the book a kind of relief from a lot of other things in our culture because, you know, it's about you know, how much people can do for one another. You know, to jump ahead just, just quickly, then we'll come back to Elizabeth Bishop. You know, the, the anecdote of James Dickey in, in the book, I actually think, I, I mean, I'll, I'll leave this for, for people to look up, but I think that what you say about Dickey, who presents himself very poorly in this episode, actually comes off with a great deal of sympathy for him, even though a lot of the anger he expressed was directed right at you. Um, I, I, I think that it, it, it humanizes him uh, in, in a way that I think in another memoir that didn't have the gratitude that wanted to, I don't know, settle scores or something 
wouldn't do that. And I'm just going to leave that for, I don't know if we'll get to the Dickey episode, but, but back to Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, what was her thing about memorization, once again? <laughs> she said it very straightforwardly. She goes, I'm not a very good teacher. And to make sure that you learn something in this class, you'll have to memorize a poem every week. And every week we would come in, she'd give us a little quiz, just like, you know, like my fourth grade uh, sister of Providence in parochial school. And the students were just outraged at this. They couldn't believe that anybody would ask them to memorize a poem because they're Harvard students. They're special people. They don't need to, you know, to, to, to work for it. Uh, I loved it because there's so many poems I want to memorize. This just gave me a structured way to do it. And so, uh, but as you, we proceeded in the class, I understood that that was very much in tune with her method is that Bishop did not want us to interpret poems. She hated analysis. What she wanted us to do was to experience poems and to understand that poems gave us ways of seeing the world. I mean, she would make sure that we knew, and this is what I brought to my students at USC. You can't understand a poem unless you understand every word in it. And every word in it often contains the names of things. So when my students are, are, you know, going, are learning, I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made, nine bean rows will I have there and a hive for the honey bee and live alone in the bee loud glade. My L.A. students did not know what wattles were. They did not even know what a glade was. They did not know what a lake isle was. But in the process of my demanding tutelage, they actually discovered that in this vast plan of creation, there are islands in the middle of lakes that poor people can take reeds and clay and weave them into a wattle house, you know, Talk about sustainable architecture. I mean, <laughs> the Irish invented it. Uh, and that in forests, there is occasionally a natural clearing called a glade. But Bishop was the same way. If there was a flower in the poem, we had to be able to describe to her what the flower was like. We were reading Robert Lowell's poems on Boston. She encouraged us to get on the subway to go and actually see the buildings, see the statues. And I, I, I spent one day doing this, and she was absolutely right. It not only taught me how to read Robert Lowell's poetry, but it taught me so much about Boston. And so you know, she was a poet in an Ivy League university full of professors. And she insisted, in a sense, on the, the primacy of the poetic imagination, which is concrete, specific, sensory, emotional, intuitive, rather than the analytical conceptual world, which Harvard represented. And I think she's right. I think that the reason that people don't like poetry is that it's been taught in a way that's far too intellectual for the better part of a hundred years now. And if they, if they like poetry to be performative, intuitive, emotional, people would connect to it naturally in the way that previous generations did. Yeah. Your next portrait is of Robert Fitzgerald, uh, the great poet and translator. 
there at Harvard. It opens with a, a compelling scene in the New Haven train station. Uh, but you say that you ended up in his classes at Harvard because of a, quote, an unfashionable interest in prosody. Now, I can understand impatience with prosody in the way a, a basketball player doesn't want to shoot 100 free throws. He wants to get in the game. Let's go. Let's start competing. But he knows that he needs to practice his, his free throws. He knows he needs to work on the fundamentals. Why, why would aspiring writers and poets not want to work on the basics of verse, meter, rhyme, and so on. What was, what was the problem? Well, there was two problems. I mean, first of all, back at the time when I wrote, you know, when I was going through these things, it was accepted as gospel truth that metered verse, rhyme were dead, and that free verse was going to be the form of all poetry in the future. So everybody just wanted to write free verse. The second reason is that it takes a lot of, of trouble to learn to write meter. There's a wonderful, I, I quoted Yeats uh, earlier, but there's a recording of Yeats actually reading this poem. And he says, people ask me why I read this poem in the style that I do. I took a great deal of trouble to get it into rhyme and meter and I am not going to read it as if it were prose. <laughs> you know? and, Perfect. And it's absolutely, you know, it's a great deal of trouble to do this. But what I loved about poetry as a kid, and honestly, what I love about poetry as an old man is its music. It's the way that you can take words and elevate them into a kind of song. And I just wanted to know how the hell poets did this you know i would try to do this and it would just sound awful <laughs> the meter was off and everything else and so i said i have to learn how to make words sing to make words dance and so i studied it on my own and i was making a little bit of progress but i'll tell you something that i hope everybody knows you can learn things on your own but a teacher saves you time, and a great teacher changes your life. And in Fitzgerald, as a poet, especially as a Catholic poet, I found the teacher that I needed at that moment in my life. And he saved me years in terms of, of helping me you know, move into, into being a poet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask now, you about I, his... I the class was not a creative writing class. It was not a creative writing class. It was a class on versification, prosody, meter, a highly technical class, but it was exactly what I needed. Well, you know, what happened in the first week of class? Because as opposed to Bishop's class, which is practically empty, you walk into Fitzgerald's class on prosody, and it's packed. What happened in the next few class meetings? Well, see, Fitzgerald was a fashionable teacher. If you were a poet at Harvard, you were supposed to take one of Fitzgerald's classes. So Fitzgerald organized his first two classes to scare people away. <laughs> you know, he started giving this speech. He, he would write Greek on the, you know, he covered the board with Greek letters and do elaborate uh, uh, stanchions of, of long dead, you know, uh, prosodic schemes from 
from Attic to Greek, and uh, and start talking about you know reading this and that and analyzing this and doing this, and it you know and people just began to leave because you know they thought it was going to be you know let's all write poems together and be geniuses, and so and then you know after he got the class down from about fifty to about fifteen, uh, maybe between fifteen and twenty, it was just this, he relaxed. And suddenly you had this great poet and scholar who was one of the most charming people I've ever met in my life just talk about poetry. It was sort of like getting a great painter just to go through the Louvre and just show you little details from all these, these, these paintings. And so it was, it was a, you know, for me, it was a transformative experience in my life. And an extra you know, plus for me was that Fitzgerald was a very serious Catholic. People may remember that when Flannery O'Connor came to live in the North, she was a little intimidated by the idea and she wanted to live with a Catholic family. So she moved in with Robert Fitzgerald and his wife and uh, their six kids. And so, you know, Fitzgerald was this also a model for me that you could be a Catholic and a writer. You know, I didn't meet any other practicing Catholics in my literary education. You, you say he was the only, at least as you could tell, the only practicing Catholic teacher you ever had in, in college or graduate school. Yes, he was. I had one Anglican. Um, there, there were one or two Catholics, you know, I'm sure in these faculties, but I never had one. And I didn't really know that much about Fitzgerald, but from the moment that I got into a class of his that was about Homer, so I took two classes from him in the same semester, Homer, Virgil, and Dante, his Catholic worldview was clear. And, uh, and, you know, he, and he brought it, you know, not only, you know, to, to Dante, but into, in terms of his whole understanding of the Western tradition. Let me mention one phrase that you used, something that you say he understood, quote, the Catholic sense of form as a sacramental instrument of perception. What do you mean by that? Ah, that would be a whole show in of itself. But if you are Catholic, and I think if you are most kinds of Christianity, you have a double sense of the world. You experience the world as a material place. It's temporal. It's in time. But with that material world, there's always coexisting an eternal and spiritual world. One of the reasons that Christian art has the capacity for greatness is that we have a double sense of reality. Now, in a sacramental sense, these are moments when we see both worlds at once, when we see an outward material sign that leads us into a vision of the metaphysical spiritual world. Now, we know that in terms of the, of the Church of our seven sacraments, but that's not the full extent of, of the notion of sacramentality. And in fact, as any of the first things readers who have seen my talk on beauty know, that the very notion of beauty 
for a Catholic has a sacramental quality. I did not know it when I took Fitzgerald's class, but he was a great student and admirer of Jacques Maritain. And, you know, he wrote a long piece about, uh, about Maritain. But it goes to what Maritain said, which is that beauty, and he's talking about both art and nature, are the secrets of existence radiating onto the intelligence. That's what the sacramentality is, which is that we get a glimpse, and it can be, you know, as profound as the church's sacraments, or as ephemeral as our own, you know, viewing of nature, in which we see the secrets of existence radiating onto our complete human intelligence, which is not just intellectual, but is physical, is emotional, you know, and mystics bring it to a whole other level where, you know, where they, in a sense, have almost a, an open channel, in a sense, to this transcendent realm of existence. Most of us just get momentary glimpses. But, but that is the notion that, for me, is fundamental as a poet. And it's not a notion that's in our secular culture. I think one reason why so much poetry is so bad, there's so many reasons why so much poetry is so bad, is that even rather good poets too seldom have this ability, in a sense, to see through the material fabric of the world into some kind of transcendent union. But anyway, that's, that's perhaps just my Catholic bias. But but it was very, but it was very clear, you know, that when you know as we read Dante, you know, with Fitzgerald, that this was Dante's method too, the method of allegory. And he was a good teacher for me. What can I say? <laughs> I hope that when people read this book, they'll understand that I'm not the only person who was transformed by Fitzgerald's teaching. He was one of the most influential. Uh, poetry teachers of his generation, although nobody seems to recognize this. And so one reason I wanted to write such a careful a portrait of him, about his methods and his ideas, was I wanted to secure him a, a bigger place in terms of American literary history, yeah. and certainly for Catholic uh, literary history. There's much more to talk about. You had a week with John Cheever uh, that happened at Stanford that includes in the book uh, a, an episode with Saul Bellow, you, you've have I mentioned the the, the encounter uh, with with James Dickey. There's more. The book though is studying with Miss Bishop: Memoirs from a Young Writer's Life. Dana Joya, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at. 877-332-2930.